welcome to the CEU Medieval Radio podcast. I'm Karen Culver, an alumna of the Cultural Heritage Studies Programme, which is part of the Medieval Studies Department at CEU. This podcast is part of an occasional series, New Faces, New Ideas, in which we talk to current PhD students about their research and where it might lead them. Today, I have come into the CEU campus in Budapest to talk to Anna Kinde, a PhD student in the medieval department, about her research for her doctoral thesis. Anna gained her BA in liberal arts, specialising in art history at the Pasmani Peter Catholic University here in Budapest. She wrote her thesis on the Gothic stone fragments found at the restoration of the Oradea Castle in Romania. She then took an MA in Art History, also at the Pasman Peter University, with a thesis on 20th century restoration of St Michael's Church in Cluj-Napoca, also in Romania. In 2018, Anna received an MA in Late Antique, Medieval and Early Modern Studies at CEU, writing her thesis on the use of ambulatories in the 14th century Central European Cathedral. Her current research continues this theme and focuses on the use of the eastern section of late medieval cathedrals in Central Europe. When not researching, Anna has a lively interest in music, both playing violin and guitar with several local early music groups. Anna, welcome to this podcast. Hello, it's nice to be here. Anna, your research starts with the premise that people and communities are reflected in their physical surroundings. And so to understand these physical surroundings helps us to understand the society and how it functioned. Your research focuses on the varying functions of the East End of specific Central European cathedrals in the late Middle Ages, that being from 13 to 1500. And how were these functions demonstrated through the architecture and decorations? Anna, could you explain first, why did you select this particular subject? It came quite naturally to me, because I was previously working on Oradea Castle and on ambulatories, late medieval ambulatories in cathedrals, for example, Oradea Cathedral. And I did have a previous interest in late Gothic architecture. But I also find this fascinating because it gives us an insight into how medieval people uh, arranged their spaces and not just their living spaces, but a kind of representative space that was actually built to endure like a stone cathedral the sort of functional aspect, so analyzing the functions of a space through the material remains is something new that I am interested in. It is a bit of a departure from traditional art history. Um, You plan to focus only on the eastern end of cathedrals. Why only this particular part and not the entire building or even other parts of the cathedral? Why the eastern end? I think the eastern end is a good place to start, actually. So this kind of functional analysis of space is not very, very widespread at the moment. And one whole cathedral can be the basis for a PhD thesis. 
I am doing multiple buildings, so I had to constrict the somehow the subject so it would fit into the research period. And I chose the eastern part because the eastern part had actually a more uh, standardized function than the western part of cathedrals where all kinds of events took place and it was used for many, many more things that would take a longer time to research. So what sort of things happened in the eastern end of a major cathedral? What is interesting to note for those who are not very familiar with medieval church architecture is every church was oriented from west to east and the entrance was always at the west, the big entrance, the big portal, and the altar was always at the east, the main altar where the mass was held. So this was the primary function of the eastern end, to have the altar and celebrate the mass. But over time, additional functions have emerged here. For example, people started to um, have their tombs placed near the eastern end, and sometimes they would uh, use this part for other major ritual events like coronations. And you also mention ambulatories. What happened in ambulatories? Ambulatorium is a space that you use to walk around something. So some cathedrals have a sort of an alley around the eastern end. So you can actually circumambulate the altar and go from, from the northern part through the eastern part and to the western part in one motion. This is what an ambulatory does. But we are not sure why some cathedrals in this time were built with ambulatories and why some were built without ambulatories. So we are not sure about the function of this space. You have selected several quite specific cathedrals in different parts of Central Europe. I remember seeing you talk about Hungary, Poland, Bohemia, and what we would now call Croatia. Why these specific buildings, towns, and what is their connection to each other? I try to select case studies where either we have significant material remains, so some part of the building is still standing, or we have uh, significant written remains, as in the case of, for example, Prague or Krakow or even Oradea Cathedral. Or, for example, why I chose some of the Polish cathedrals like Gniezno and Poznań is because they had a very important role to play in the development of local religious organization. So the way that the liturgy was performed in these cathedrals also affected the way that liturgy was performed everywhere in these parts, because they were bishoprics, basically. So I choose these because these were the most interesting places or the places that had the most sources. And I think that compared to each other, they will give out some kind of pattern that I can analyze. Do they still all exist or have some turned into ruins already? 
some some still exist. For example, the Prague Cathedral is is very well preserved, and also the Wawel Cathedral, although significantly rebuilt. The Wawel Cathedral, that's the one in Krakow, isn't it? Yes, it's located on the Wawel Hill in the in the castle. For some, we have some ruins in the ground or just above ground level. For example, this is the case with Eger Cathedral and Oradea Cathedral. And there is also some, unfortunately, that have been completely destroyed, like Kalocsa Cathedral. Kalocsa is in the southern part of Hungary, and it's quite interesting. Medieval Hungary had two archbishoprics, which was unusual, because usually one kingdom had one archbishopric. Medieval Hungary had two. One of them was Estergom, and the other one was Kalocsa. And Estergom Cathedral was completely raised to the ground. The hill where it stood was remodeled, and the new cathedral has been built. So we only know the ground plan of Estergom Cathedral because there has been a survey just before it was demolished. And for Kalocsa, it was also demolished, and the new cathedral was built on top, and also, we only have the outline and some stone fragments from this cathedral. This is actually the case with many Hungarian cathedrals. Over time, even though they were very, very important buildings with tombs of famous people and many historical events occurring there, at some point they were destroyed and then, and then later rebuilt in a completely different form. You note that they are all medieval cathedrals. Why did you select the period 13 to 1500? What was happening specifically then? And throughout the wide region you've selected, being Central Europe, were things all moving in the same direction at the same pace? Or were some areas doing their own, doing their own thing? I have selected this period... Because of my art historical background, we we view this period of this, so kind of the late Gothic architecture, um, as opposed to the previous early Gothic and high Gothic architecture. So the way the buildings were decorated in this time, and also the way they were built, is is a little bit different. Uh, what also happened in the 1300 is that major ruling houses across Central Europe have died out. So the Arpa dynasty has died out, and the Pramishal dynasty has also died out. There was a wave of new constructions that was motivated partly by the changing power relations and the need for the royal families to um, show their might and show their legitimacy through architecture. This was the case in Krakow and Prague, but I have not seen this as of yet in Hungarian cathedrals, and that is something interesting to compare and contrast. In your dissertation prospectus, you mentioned the dichotomy of cathedral building being on one side planned in advance, on the other side on-the-spot decisions by the builders as they're working. How do you tell the difference in finished buildings today, and what does this tell us of the, the builders, the architects, the patrons, the changing fashions? 
this is what you just asked is one of the major questions in art history for me that is fascinating me at the moment because we don't we simply cannot tell there are some very very few signs that suggest that a different group of people are working on different parts of a cathedral this idea was was first demonstrated by a guy called John James who wrote about the Chart Cathedral about the contractors of Chart and he demonstrated through very very careful analysis of very small marks and signs on the building that uh, it was actually built by over 30 different groups or several groups but in 30 different building campaigns Before this, we used to think that major cathedrals were built in three, five, or slightly more building campaigns, depending on funding. But now it seems like, it kind of seems like that the ground plan was decided in advance, but the elevation of the building was decided by the master builder, who is coordinating the building on the spot. So they they didn't have engineering and architectural design as we do now. They only had their their expertise, their very um, hands-on knowledge of, of construction. And this is in contrast with the need of art historians to interpret every piece of decoration and every every piece of a cathedral as if it is part of a larger plan that is alluding to something, that means something, that was carefully thought out by the bishop or by the king who gave the money, or even by the chapter, the clergy who was sort of employed at the cathedral and who were regularly doing the masses there. You say that John James has identified at Chartres Cathedral over 30 different groups of workmen, was that spaced out in time, does he know, or was it 30 different groups on different parts at the same time? Um, okay, it's very hard to tell. It's, it's actually surprisingly hard to tell how long it actually took to build a building because we have very scarce sources on... So nobody was writing down a journal of the constructions or so. Sometimes we have sources like the wages that were given out and sort of the accounting, and then we can tell how the building progressed. But otherwise, it's very hard to tell. And we only have very vague ideas, even in the case of Chart, about how the construction actually progressed and whether they were, there were parallel building works. So I, I can't answer your question. You mean the builders didn't have a daily blog? No blog, I'm afraid. You talked earlier about the difference between having sources with the actual building and some sources which are just records, and you've just mentioned the, the financial records. So I really wanted to ask about your sources of information, how you select those sources and which ones you select to use. More interesting, which ones you select not to use? 
So the main sources that I am using are the buildings themselves, whatever is left of them, and the stone fragments that come from these buildings. These I can interpret using an art historical methodology. And I am supplementing these with written sources, which are either charters issued at the respective cathedral, which may or may not mean that the construction was in a certain phase by that time, if they mention part of a cathedral or an altar from a cathedral, for example. I can also use descriptive sources in the case when some kind of miracle happened in the cathedral, for example, at the tomb of a saint, or when there was a coronation at the cathedral, and then there were documents produced for this occasion. Some of my sources are also liturgical sources. I am very fortunate because for some of these cathedrals, a type of book exists, which is called an ordinarius. This is a liturgical book that tells the priest how to perform the liturgy. So it's not telling the text that they have to say, but it's telling where to move in the church, what sign to make with their hand, and what kind of other tools they need, for example, to perform the liturgy. And this can give some indication about how the space was used. Yes, I suppose it would. When we were preparing for this interview, you also mentioned that sometimes a big cathedral could be used as almost a court of law. Would you like to expand on that at all? So medieval law was very different. And the way that justice was decided, in some cases it was not decided by earthly judges, but by God. For example, this could very well happen at the tomb of a saint, and we have records for this from Oradea Castle, among others, where the tomb of St. Ladislaus functioned as this sort of place to have these trials where somebody could prove their right to something. And there used to be these trials that were decided by God, for example, a trial by fire. So would that be over property rights, over crime? All kinds of all kinds of businesses really. But this was reserved for the more important ones, where there was no other way to prove who was in the right. Also some of the cathedrals, because of their holy nature, because it was a sacral place, some also functioned as sort of gathering rooms where important people could swear on something that they decided to do together. So peace treaties were signed at cathedrals, for example, because it was, it was a place that was outside of normal secular use, and it was a significant place. So I would like to investigate these functions too. So did anything ever happen that was, I don't know, like trading, markets? Um... Okay, good question. Um, this pertains more to the western side of the cathedrals and actually to the halls. 
So nowadays you have these benches in the cathedrals where everybody can sit down. In the medieval times, this was not the case. It, it was an empty space where people were standing. If you remember from the Bible, there is even a case there. The, the merchants are in the temple and Jesus goes there and he throws their tables and he, he banishes them basically from the temple. Because this used to happen every time. The cathedral was the center of the town, and usually the biggest fairs were held in front of the cathedral, partly in the cathedral. This is demonstrated, for example, by a building that I am not investigating at the moment, but have investigated in the past, the Stefanskirche in Vienna. The Stefanskirche has a rod built into the wall on the outside. And the function of this rod is that it was used to measure linen, to make sure that the merchants were not cheating with the length of linen. So this shows how important it was as a sort of gathering place for merchants and for commercial life. Anna, you are researching the interaction between communities and their built environment in the medieval period, being specifically the eastern end of the great cathedrals. What is the relevance and interest of this to a modern audience? It's interesting for us today because there is an emerging need to organise our living spaces and our communal spaces better. For example, it is just now starting that people are investigating the neurological effects of space on the brain. And it has been demonstrated that well-organized spaces simply make us happier. It makes it easier for us to organize our lives and to feel secure and to function in a more comfortable way. Is that a domestic space or an urban space or, or both? Both. On one hand, this has not been a consideration before. For living spaces, you can actually observe that from the beginning of the 20th century, they have become more comfortable and they have started to be designed so that the people living there would feel more comfortable. But for communal spaces... Cathedrals are always brought as an example of a very well-organized space because they are these longitudinal spaces. You enter on the west, you see immediately the main part of the cathedral on the east. It is usually the best lit part with huge windows. And the way that the objects are placed in the cathedral and the way that the light is shining, it all has a psychological effect that medieval people were probably not aware of, but they tended to build their spaces in this way. And we are now kind of investigating why and how this could help us shape our modern spaces, where there is a very heterogeneous way of designing communal spaces. So some of them are very good examples where people feel good, where it feels good to be there based on what you are surrounded by, the materials, the, the size of the rooms, the direction of the light. But sometimes you also have very poor examples. 
where these are not taken into consideration. So I would like to make this make people more aware of this, of the space that surrounds them. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me actually. And and the the these these sort of skyscrapers that are built today, they are uninhabitable. I just read a, a report about the um one of the New York's highest skyscrapers. It's one hundred twenty something stories and it costs over forty million dollars to have an apartment there and it's a very bad place to live. The wind makes a very loud noise at that altitude. When you throw down the trash, it makes a huge noise when it when it goes down and it hits the ground. And don't even start with the plumbing <laughs> because it's a nightmare. And the and the people who live there they hate each other because of these issues. So this is an example where it was not considered how the design of the building would actually affect the people living there. And we see this many, many times in modern constructions that the either the the commissioner or the architect is not aware of these psychological effects of the spaces of the buildings. And we see many poorly designed buildings. They are not only ugly, but they are uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, many buildings can be ugly, but really very comfortable inside. And you just put up with the ugliness. Really, as my, my last question, what do you think this research will achieve for you personally? And where do you think your thesis will lead? Where will you go after this? I really hope to do something connected to medieval architecture in the future. I would either like to teach at a university because my topic covers a quite diverse group of objects from different countries from a huge period of time. I think I will have a good overview that can serve as a basis to teach art history to students. But I am also very interested in monument protection. And so studying medieval buildings would help me to better approach existing medieval monuments and make art historical suggestions about how they could best be conserved or restored eventually. Unfortunately, the state of monument protection in Hungary at the moment is not the best. So there are not many employment opportunities for me, but I still have a few years until I finish my PhD. I think I would like to stay in academia if possible and to continue investigating medieval buildings. I really hope and I think that this, this PhD research plus the many, many networking connections here at the medieval department at CU and also the opportunities afforded by, by my supervisor and the other professors here. I really think that it will enable me to pick and choose when I get to that period. 
I just have to finish the dissertation first. That is the hard part. Anna, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you and fascinating to listen to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been really interesting to talk about what I'm doing.